Alfred Howitt is on a mission. It's September, the 15th to be precise, of 1861. And up in the far north of Australia, he's on the trail of a party of men who have vanished without trace while attempting to cross the continent all the way from Port Phillip in Victoria to the Gulf of Carpentaria in Queensland. And he's worried. Very, very worried. He's been looking for these men for the past three months and all signs point to catastrophe. Useful supplies abandoned along the road. Word that the party had split up in a mad attempt to reach the coast. Scurvy and disease making short work of those left behind. And an Indigenous people who have already proven hostile to the incursions of white men into their lands. Then, through the silence of the Australian desert, comes a sudden gunshot. Then another. And another. Howard hastens towards the sound and sees one of his own men up ahead. With him is another man. A white man, as thin as a skeleton, dressed in rags. Who in the name of wonder are you? Howard's man will ask him and the emaciated figure will give a reply which will see his name go down in history. I am king, sir, the last man of the exploring expedition. And so ends Alfred Howard's search for the missing explorers. Robert O'Hara Burke, William John Wills, Charlie Gray, and John King, of four men who made a mad dash to the northern coast some nine months before, King is the sole survivor. The tale he will bring back to Melbourne, a story of heroism, triumph, heartbreak and death, will become one which is told and told again over the next 160 years, the triumphant but ultimately tragic fate of the Burke and Wills expedition. But is this story really all it seems? I'm Juliana and you're listening to the Skeptical Historian. Hello, fellow skeptics. Thank you so much for joining me for the very first full-length episode of The Skeptical Historian. Before I begin today's discussion of the Birkin Wheels expedition, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that I am podcasting today from the lands of the Wurundjeri Watharong people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and extend this respect to the Indigenous peoples of all lands where this podcast may be listened to today. Now, if, like me, you are in Australia today, You've probably heard of Birkin Wills, or at the very least, you'll know the phrase the Birkin Wills Expedition. On the 20th of August, 1860, the Victorian Exploring Expedition, as the Birkin Wills Expedition was originally known, set out from Royal Park in Melbourne with the aim of crossing the continent from south to north. So it was expected to take around 12 months and it originally comprised of 19 men, 27 camels, 23 horses, two years' worth of supplies, and about 21 tonnes of equipment. So you might be wondering, how did such a large and well-provisioned expedition party find itself whittled down to four by the time they reached the top of Australia 
And how was it that only one man survived to tell the tale? The typical story of Burke and Wills in this regard puts much of the blame on bad luck, a hard country, and the incompetence of a supply party who never arrived. However, it doesn't take too much digging to uncover a far more disturbing narrative about how the Burke and Wills expedition went so wrong. Now, those of you who are already familiar with this story, please forgive me while I give a summary for anyone who hasn't heard it before or who might need a recap. The Burke and Wills expedition left Melbourne 20 August 1860. The journey was expected to take 12 months, so about a year, but they were provisioned for double that time just in case of contingencies and the Royal Society of Victoria was providing the funding along with a lot of generous donations from the public. Now, the expedition went from Melbourne to Swan Hill, Balranald, and onto Menendee in New South Wales, before pushing on through Torawato Swamp, Bulu River, and up to Cooper's Creek. Now, if these place names don't mean anything to you, please don't stress. I'll be putting a link to a map up on my blog after this episode. It was at Cooper's Creek that the leader of the expedition, Robert O'Hara Burke, split the party. He was expecting a supply party from Menendee, which was the closest settlement, to be at Cooper's Creek within about 10 days, and he wanted to press on for the coast. He left behind a small contingent of men to establish a depot at Cooper's Creek while he pushed north, and in his company was his second officer, William Wills, Bushman and former sailor Charlie Gray and former soldier John King. Now, King had served in India and he knew how to look after the camels, which the four men needed as they moved north. At the time the party split up, it was about December of 1860, and Cooper's Creek was the furthest point explored by white men in Australia. So Burke and his companions were literally heading into the unknown. The men left behind at Cooper's Creek to establish that depot consisted of a German man named William Bray and three others who were expecting a much larger supply party, as mentioned, and that supply party would be headed by Menendee local William Wright. He was expected within the fortnight. Now, Burke had instructed the depot party to wait three months for his return. However, Wills had taken Bray aside and asked him to wait an extra month, so four months. If they weren't back within four months, Bray was told to consider them dead. Burke, Wills, Gray and King pushed north and they did reach the Gulf of Carpentaria. It was on about the 11th of February, 1861. Now, they were the first white men to cross the continent. But it was as they turned south and headed back to Cooper's Creek that things started to go wrong. They began to run low on food and they had to slaughter a horse to avoid starvation. And then Charlie Gray began to ail very badly and he died on the 17th of April. So this should give you an idea of just how unwell and how weak everybody was. They're already cutting it very fine. The three months that Burke had originally given Bray has passed and they are still not back at Cooper's Creek. And the three survivors, so that is Burke, Wills and King, eventually arrived back at the depot on Cooper's Creek on the 21st of April, 1861, exactly four months and four days after they left. And they discovered it had been abandoned. 
in what would turn out to be a horrible twist of fate, William Bray and the three remaining men had actually left only hours before. Their campfire was still burning when Burke, Wills and King arrived. Now, that supply party they'd been expecting from Men and D had never come. Uh, their provisions had been running low and all of the men were ill with scurvy and one man, man was actually fatally sick. Now, Bray had held on for as long as he could before he'd given the order to break camp and head back to Men and D. And he honestly believed that Burke and the others had been lost somewhere in the desert. Now, Bray did leave a camel trunk full of what few supplies he could spare. And he buried that under a tree and blazed it with one word. And that word became famous in this story. That is the word dig. Burke, Wills and King had no idea how ill Bray and his men were or that their party was moving slowly back to men and D. They actually could have caught them had they followed. But they believed these were healthy men moving fast and that they, as three very weak, exhausted men, had absolutely no chance of catching them. They did find Bray's supplies and they then decided to try and make for Mount Hopeless, which was in South Australia. Mount Hopeless was closer to Cooper's Creek than Men and Dee, but none of these men knew the way there and none of them had the skills necessary to survive long term in the bush without provisions. William Wills starved to death on about the 28th of June, 1861. And Burke also died of starvation not long after, on the 1st of July in 1861. The men had observed the Indigenous people collecting a seed called nadu and making cakes, and they had been living in this fashion up until this point. Unfortunately, while nadu filled them, a diet strictly on this seed did not give them the nutritional value they needed to survive. Now, King, also weak and starving himself, survived only because he had the sense to seek the help of the Indigenous people, the Yadu Wanhara people. And I apologise to any listeners, I'm not a native speaker and I hope I've said that right. Now, he lived with this tribe for three months. He integrated himself with them before he was eventually rescued by Alfred Howitt, which was the immersion you heard at the beginning of this episode. After returning King safely to Melbourne, Howitt would set out on another expedition, this time to retrieve the earthy remains of Burke and Wills. King had taken him to where they had died and Howitt had buried them there and bring them back to Melbourne for a grand state funeral. On the 21st of January, 1862, Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Wills were laid to rest in the Melbourne General Cemetery, although the story of their heroism lived on. So now that you know the story, I'm going to pause here for a quick break and I'll be back to dig into this story like Birkin Wills under the tree at Cooper's Creek. Welcome back. Now, I hope you brought a shovel with you because we are about to dig like we're at the dig tree at Cooper's Creek and discover exactly what went wrong for Birkin Wills and why history has been swapped for glory. Now, first of all, there's something I need you to understand about the expedition's leader, Robert O'Hara Burke, and that is that he was a terrible bushman. In fact, his bushcraft skills were non-existent, and even his friends didn't pretend that he had any of that knowledge. During his time as a police officer in New South Wales, 
He famously got lost while walking down the main road in Castle Maine. Now, this wasn't a bush track at this time either. This was a wide, broad thoroughfare. And Burke decided to take a shortcut by wandering off the road into the bush. And he got lost and had to be rescued on the main road. He should never have been outside the settled districts of Australia. But there's more to Burke than a poor sense of direction. And those of you who were counting along before the break would have noticed that by the time Burke, Wills, Gray and King set off for the northern coast of Australia, the expedition party as a whole had been reduced from 19 to 8. Now, Burke had a notoriously bad temper and he was prone to both violence and outbursts of irrational behaviour. Now, he constantly treated the men under his command very badly and he had little regard for their general welfare. Now, he actually threatened to shoot his original second officer. So Wills was originally brought into the expedition as the third officer, and he was under a man named George Landles. Landles, the original second officer, had an argument with Burke, and Burke's response was to pull out a gun. So unsurprisingly, this behavior led to a string of resignations and Burke actually lost the services of quite a few men who actually knew how to survive in the bush. And this undoubtedly contributed to not only his own death, but the deaths of Wills and Gray as well. The other thing Burke was, was a high class gentleman. Now at this time, that was seen as very important. Gentlemen knew everything. They were born to rule, born to lead. They were perfect. There were other explorers who had actually put their names forward, men who had gone out into Australia, white men, I should say, and who knew the country and who could have survived in the bush. Burke actually got the job because the committee was bribed. He didn't bribe them. A friend of his did. And so the committee or the Royal Society, who was funding the expedition, said, yes, Burke is perfect. He's a gentleman, which is exactly what we want. Someone like us, someone from the ruling class, born to succeed. Oh, and we like the fact that his friend has paid us as well. So if you're like me, that'll make you angry. And it makes me even more angry because this stupidity, both on Burke's part and the part of the committee, didn't just take Burke's life. It took the lives of other men as well. One of these men was William Wills. Now, Wills was one of a number of scientists who were hired for the expedition, and his specialities were astronomy and navigation. He was actually a bit of a prodigy. He studied many, many sciences and was quite skillful in a lot of them and actually worked at the Melbourne Observatory for a time before embarking on the expedition. The science of this was important because the Birkin Wills expedition was not just a race to the top of Australia. It was also an opportunity to collect valuable data about the flora, fauna and climate that was outside these settled districts. The explorers were also supposed to be looking for suitable sites to build an overland telegraph and to report back on the land that they found, in inverted commas of course, because the Indigenous people were already there, and whether that land would be suitable for grazing. So there's a very dark underside to this because this would kick off much later uh, many of the massacres in rural and outback Australia as white settlers cleared land for grazing. Now, like Burke, Wills was not a bushman. 
But he had every reason to believe that the Royal Society, the committee organising and funding the expedition, would be hiring Bushmen to ensure that he and his fellow scientists would be able to do their work without starving to death. It was a very reasonable assumption. Now, Burke was not at all scientific, and he actually felt that these things were a distraction from the real purpose of what he was beginning to feel was his expedition. And for him, the whole purpose of this was so that he could have the glory of being the first man to cross the continent. This wasn't what the Royal Society wanted, but for Burke, this was the main goal. And this feeling probably contributed to a lot of the behaviours which drove the constant resignations of his men and may have also been the driving force behind his very irrational decision to rush for the coast without waiting for the supply party he was expecting to meet up with him and his remaining seven men at Cooper's Creek. Now, I've talked a lot about this supply party, but what was so important about them beyond the fact that they were supposed to be there and they weren't? Well, by the time Burke reached Cooper's Creek with his remaining seven men, he was running a bit low on provisions. He had arranged a supply party to come and relieve them. They'd be at Cooper's Creek within 10 days, a fortnight at most. So Burke felt comfortable leaving four men at Cooper's Creek to set up a depot while he pushed on to the coast. Yet when William Bray and his men were forced to abandon that depot just over four months later, weak, ill, starving and sick with scurvy, that supply party had still not arrived. In fact, the depot party met up with the supply party in Menendee when they returned to seek help. And if you've been listening closely, you will know that Menendee is where the supply party was supposed to start from. So yes, you heard right. The supply party had never set off. Now, William Wright, who actually has come in for a lot of heat over the years and is seen as one of the villains in the Burke and Will story was the head of that supply party. But I want to break down a few of the myths around him and his decision not to move off. He was a Menendee local, knew the area and was a fairly experienced Bushman. Now he wanted confirmation of his appointment from the Royal Society before setting out on this expedition to relieve the depot party. And this included assurances that he'd be paid his requested salary. He wanted between 300 and 400 pounds. Now, this might sound very mercenary, especially if Wright knew that Burke was counting on him. But Wright actually had a whole host of very good reasons to wait for confirmation of his appointment before setting out. Now, first of all, it was heading towards summer and while he was not an expert bushman, he knew enough to know that heading into the uncharted north of Australia in summer was a really, really bad idea. Secondly, the party that Burke had left him with was made up of men and animals who were actually in no condition to be setting out on a long journey into the great unknown. Burke did not have a lot of care for the welfare of his men and animals and drove them quite hard. So by the time they reached Menendee, some were actually sick enough to require medical attention. They had traveled about 800 kilometers by this point and Wright recognized that a lot of them needed rest. But perhaps more pressingly, 
White didn't have the supplies necessary to set off quickly into the unknown. And he didn't have money to buy them either. Now, without that confirmation from the committee that, one, they were aware of all these factors, which they should have been, Burke had written to them, and that they were going to be able to fund Wright to get the supplies he needed and to keep him supplied as he moved off into the desert, he was not going anywhere. And to be perfectly honest, I really can't blame him. But I want to touch on the issue of money here, because this one was actually a particularly fraught issue. Unknown to Burke, the Royal Society had actually run out of funds not long after he set off, and quite a few of the men who had resigned and been presented with checks had actually found themselves stranded in remote settlements because their checks bounced. One of the very few experienced Bushmen who had initially been hired for the expedition actually ended up walking about 400 kilometres from Belradar to Melbourne. And this was despite having a check on him for £16, which would have been enough for a stagecoach back. But everywhere he attempted to cash it, it bounced. This pattern of bouncing checks was repeated with other members of the expedition party who left after having had enough of being treated poorly by Burke and being fed up with his erratic behaviour. Now, William Wright, up in Menendee, was also perfectly aware of the money problems because the few checks which Burke had written for the general store in Menendee had bounced after the proprietor had given him credit. And unsurprisingly, aforementioned proprietor was refusing to advance William Wright any credit until he'd been paid for what he'd already supplied to Burke. Now, I will pause here and note that Burke himself was not aware that checks were bouncing. So while a lot of the blame for the failures of this expedition can be pinned squarely on Burke, this was not one of them. The reason he didn't know was because the committee had decided not to inform him. They hadn't even attempted to inform him that they were out of money. And while he was in unsettled districts of Australia quite regularly, he did also go through places where there were post offices. He went to places where there were already messages from the committee waiting for him. So they had opportunities to tell him. So why didn't they? Well, as would come out during the committee of inquiry following the failure of the expedition, the committee was worried if they told him they couldn't fund him, that he'd abort the expedition. In my opinion, this goes beyond incompetence and actually starts to veer into the territory of criminal negligence. The committee could not pay for anything by this time, and this became a significant source of embarrassment, and so it should have been, to the committee in the aftermath of the expedition. And the committee of inquiry, which was set up after, was actually quite scathing of the Royal Society's active cover-up in pretending that they had funds when they didn't. I'm going to pause here for another break and I'll return, hopefully a little faster than William Wright when he eventually made it to Cooper's Creek, to throw some more light on Birkenwills. Thanks for sticking with me through the break. I hope it wasn't five months long, which is, of course, how long it took William Wright to eventually get up to Cooper's Creek. Although, as we've discovered, given the condition of his men and his animals and the inability of the committee to pay him any sooner, this is probably not really all that surprising. 
He returned there with William Bray to look for Burke and Wills after meeting Bray at Menendee. Burke and Wills were not actually dead yet, although they and King had already left the depot to try and make it to Mount Hopeless, and they hadn't left any obvious signs of their presence. They had refilled the camel trunk that Bray had left with their notes and anything not immediately necessary to their survival and that they couldn't carry with them, and they'd reburied it but they didn't carve a new blaze on the tree. Now, when Bray had left, he'd carved dig and the date of his departure. Now, Burke, Wills and King had felt the word dig would serve their purpose just as well in instructing anyone who came this way to dig under the tree. Now, they didn't expect that Bray would be someone who would come back unless it was with a rescue party and that would be months on. Now, by that stage, they reasoned they would have made it to Mount Hopeless or they'd be dead. In fact, Bray returned just a few weeks later with Wright and believed the depot was undisturbed. He didn't dig because all he saw was his own blaze. So he never knew that Burke, Wills and King were alive and they were actually within gunshot of him at that very moment. And it is now, as Burke, Wills and King are trudging into the nether, that the story starts to get murky. This is because King was the only one of the four members of the golf party, that is the men who reached the top of Australia, to survive. And so we have to rely almost solely on his account of what happened between leaving the depot camp at Cooper's Creek in February 1861 and his being found by Alfred Howard in September of the same year. Now, William Wills did keep detailed journals for as long as he could, with his final entry being the 28th of June, and this is presumed to be around the date he died. If he didn't die on this day, he died shortly after. He would have been too weak to continue writing. Now, we don't know exactly when Wills died because Burke and King weren't with him. He had told them to leave him and go and find help as he was actually too weak to walk. Now, they left him with some Nadu seed, which they had been using to make bread after observing the Indigenous people doing the same thing. And then they moved off as he had asked. Now, it's likely that he knew they wouldn't find help but that he didn't want them to waste time waiting for him to die when there was a possibility they could be saved. Burke died three days later and King returned to where they had left Wills to find him dead as well. In fact, the only reason we have Wills's last journals is because King was able to preserve some of them and others had been buried by Wills at different campsites and were retrieved by various relief parties over the years. Now, in general, Wills' observations match up with King's testimony, but it is something to keep in the back of your mind when thinking about the return journey from the Gulf of Carpentaria. There was no one to contradict anything King claimed happened between February to September 1861. Now, that doesn't mean he was lying, but it does mean that anything he didn't wish to talk about and that wasn't written down by Wills and Wills was a scientific man who didn't make many social observations, will never be known. And I want to give an example here of what that might look like and talk about Charlie Gray, who was the other man who made it to the Gulf of Carpentaria. And he was actually the first of that party to die on the 17th of April, 1861. So before they reached Cooper's Creek. Now, Gray was the first of the party to start to feel the effects of starvation compounded by dysentery and possibly scurvy. Now, the others, while they were also hungry, 
actually had little sympathy for him initially as they thought he was putting on his symptoms. They were all eating the same rations, but none of them were quite so ill. Before joining the expedition at Swan Hill, Gray had worked at a public house, so at a bar, and he was known to drink heavily, although according to his employer, who later gave testimony at the Commission of Inquiry, he was an excellent employee and his drinking habits did not affect his ability to work hard. And before living in Swan Hill, he had been a sailor. Now, I tell you all this because I think it's relevant to his death. He was slightly older than Burke and Wills in his 40s and much older again than King, who was only in his 20s. And his heavy drinking had probably affected his liver, so his body wouldn't have been able to cope with the extreme stress that he was under in the same way the other men could at this time. On the 25th of March, Wills caught Gray, who had been in charge of preparing the food for the men, stealing flour to make porridge. Now, in a group of starving men, all surviving on limited rations, stealing food is a particularly grave offence. Now, Burke was understandably livid when he found out, and we know that he struck Grey as punishment. King, on his return to Melbourne, spent a lot of time defending Grey's reputation and characterised Burke's strikes as mere taps and a few boxes around Grey's ears. Now, to us, this seems barbaric, but it was considered harmless for the time, a perfectly normal in a society that considered corporal punishment to be just routine. Now, King was particularly keen to put to rest the idea, which was reported in some of the papers, that Burke had effectively beaten poor Charlie Gray to death. Now, according to King, this was simply not true. Or was it? In his own diaries, William Wills describes the beating Gray received as a good thrashing. And to me, this would seem to imply more than a few slaps around the head. And it's one of the few instances where Wills's written account diverges from King's testimony back in Melbourne. Wills doesn't give any details of this good thrashing that Burke supposedly gave Gray. And of course, he didn't make it back for anyone to ask him further questions about it. It's also interesting to note that Wills wasn't there when Burke struck Gray. He had gone to look for Nadu, whereas King was present. So does this mean that King is automatically right? Well, not necessarily. See, King was deeply loyal to Burke. He held him in high regard and he spent the rest of his short life, he died in 1872, aged just 33, defending Burke to the hilt. So even if Burke had beaten Gray to death, King was not likely to have told anyone so. So who should we believe? Here I dare to give my own thoughts on the subject instead of relying on the experts whose work I have used to put together this podcast. Now Burke was an irrational man and he had a history of violent behaviour, although he was not prone to striking men under his command. At this stage as well, he was also weak and starving, so he was unlikely to have had the energy to give anyone, even a very sick former sailor who couldn't fight back, any kind of hard beating whatsoever. King's version of events seems the more likely one to me, therefore, although it has been pointed out by medical historians that Gray's condition was such that even these light slaps were likely a factor which contributed to his death. Now, in a devastating twist, and there were far too many on the way back to Cooper's Creek, the day that Burke and Wills and King took to bury Gray, and in their weakened state after he died, 
just a few days after uh, this altercation with Burke, um, it did take them a full day. They weren't able to dig a full depth grave. They didn't have the equipment for it. And more importantly, they didn't have the energy to do it. And this day that they spent burying Gray meant that they missed Bray's depot party by hours. So had they just left Gray where he lay, they would have made it in time. They would have caught Bray before he left and perhaps they might have been saved. However, I don't blame them for burying him. Their own social consciences wouldn't have permitted anything else. And it's also worth noting that they really believed they were heading back to an entirely different situation than the one that was occurring at Cooper's Creek. They didn't know that Wright had been delayed at Men and D by sickness and bad checks. And they had no idea that Bray's men were in a perilous situation themselves and only days away from abandoning the depot. However, the fact that Gray's burial had sealed their own fates was not lost on Burke later. As he lay dying, he told King not to spend time burying him, but simply leave him where he lay and put a pistol in his right hand. Now, King followed this instruction and found sanctuary with the Indigenous people soon after. Now, before I close out today, I want to take a moment to talk about Alfred Howitt, who was the man who headed the relief expedition, which found Birkin Wills, or I should say found King and the remains of Birkin Wills. Now, Howitt was an experienced Bushman, and when he was sent off on the relief expedition, he rejected all the committee's advice that he take a large party to scour the continent. Uh, instead, he did as he'd done in the past, and he took a small party of men he knew well and that was equipped to live off the land, so he didn't need to carry excessive provisions, although, of course, they did have rations. Now, he actually got incredibly lucky because he met William Bray in Swan Hill. Now, Bray was trying to make his way to a telegraph office in Bendigo. He had met up with Wright at Men and D. And then gone. Then they had gone back up to Cooper's Creek together to see if Burke and Wills had been there. As I mentioned, they had, but they didn't realize. And then they went back to Menendee and Bray was on his way to Bendigo to send a telegram to the committee informing them of what had happened. By this point, the papers were already reporting that Burke, Wills, King and Gray were dead, even though this was premature. And rumors of a catastrophe were on the horizon. Now, when Howard met Bray in Swan Hill, he actually heard directly what had happened at the depot and what had happened in Menendee with Wright, and Howard realized he was under-equipped and that Burke was probably much further north than anyone had anticipated him getting. So he and Bray went back to Melbourne to speak to the committee, um, although unlike Burke, Howitt had no time for the committee to be debating motions and voting on them. He told them what he needed them to do, and he actually got it done. So four days after returning to Melbourne with Bray, he was off again. He was at the head of an experienced party who knew the bush and the land, who could navigate in a pinch. And perhaps most importantly, Howitt was a sensible, clear-headed leader who knew what he was doing. He was very experienced. In fact, he was the kind of man who should have been heading the expedition party in the first place. Now, at Men and D, he liaised with William Wright, and then they moved north, taking Wright's party with them. And with them also were those men from the original expedition who hadn't died of disease. Of course, as we know, scurvy was stalking the party at Men and D. Now, at the Cooper's Creek Depot, which Bray had been forced to abandon due to want of food, 
Howard caught fish for his men and the others found desert plants that they were able to cook to supplement their rations. And by the time Howard's party found John King, Bray and Wright were probably feeling pretty uneasy about what was going to happen to them when they got back to Melbourne. Within two months, Howard had done what they had failed to do in more than 12, and he'd done it without losing a single man along the way. So that says how important bush skills are when you're going out into the bush, which really is something that the committee should have thought of. It's just, it's, it's inconceivable to me and infuriating that they didn't because it cost quite a lot, as we'll discover. So if you've got this far with me, you've probably got one burning question that needs to be answered. How on earth did Birkin Wills become heroes? Now, Wills doesn't deserve scorn in my view. He was actually an excellent scientist and he did what he was hired to do. And his death was the result of poor decisions that were made by others. Now, Robert O'Hara Burke, on the other hand, should be held directly accountable, not only for his own death, but also for the deaths of Gray and Wills. He was an abysmal leader. He treated the men badly. And through his poor decisions, he caused a situation that led to their deaths. Now, the commission of inquiry that was held to determine what went wrong was reluctant to criticize Burke as he was already being lionized by the public. And the closest they came to what we would say is calling him out was to concede that he had had, and I quote, a far greater amount of zeal than prudence in dashing for the coast. Now, translated, that means he made a stupid choice, but the committee wasn't prepared to say that. And it's also worth noting here that this stupid decision on Burke's part didn't just cost his own life and the lives of Wills and Gray. It also cost the lives of another four Europeans who died of disease while trapped with inadequate supplies at Cooper's Creek. And it also caused the massacre of 13 Indigenous men who were murdered by a relief party that had gone searching for Burke and had concluded with no evidence whatsoever that he must have been killed by the Indigenous people. And so this massacre was a retaliation attack for something that hadn't actually happened. Now, in total, including Burke, that is 20 dead, 20 people who died because Burke decided to rush for the coast rather than wait at Cooper's Creek for the supply party to come from Menendee. Had he done that, they all would have been able to turn around when they realized Wright hadn't shown up and find out what on earth was happening. However, the committee, the commission never looked deeply into Burke's flaws. Now, to be honest, they did not have to look far. They could have found them if they wanted to. And to be perfectly honest, the Commission of Inquiry was a sham from the beginning. It was designed to move blame away from the people who it should have been pointed at and to find some other villains. Now, the other group who never took responsibility for the trouble they caused was the Exploration, sorry, the Victorian Expedition Committee, so the Royal Society who had funded it. The Commission of Inquiry was scathing about their attempts to cover up their money troubles, as I've already discussed, and troublingly, they unearthed evidence that the Society had actually received dispatches indicating the expedition was in trouble, that Wright was still at Menendee, that disease was an issue, that they were running out of supplies, but they hadn't acted on them. 
they'd chosen to do nothing because they hadn't officially come from Burke. Now, no one was ever held to account for this, and this is just criminal, in my view, to hear that the expedition that you are funding, that you are responsible for, is in dire need, and you do nothing. Now, the commission never uncovered the bribery scandal either that saw Burke appointed as leader, and this is actually uncovered by historians in the 20th century. And there was also never any official criticism of the society for hiring Burke. And this was despite the fact that other better qualified and more suitable candidates were available, and it also put their names forward. Now, history wanted titans, and they got them in Birkenwells. The public refused to believe that the men who had crossed Australia and died on the way back could be anything other than heroes. So instead, they turned their wrath on Bray and Wright. But as we have seen, both men were trapped by situations which were outside their control. And ultimately, they were forced to defend their reputations for the rest of their lives. They managed it quite well, but it did cause long-term reputational damage for both, neither of which deserved it. So next time you hear someone talk about Burke and Wills in hallowed tones, I think it's time to give them a reality check. In my opinion, scrubbing the gold off Burke's name and revealing him for the foolish, negligent man he was, responsible for 19 deaths and his own, is long overdue. And that's all I've got for you today. You can find me online at www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Uh, Connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Instagram. You can find me on both platforms by searching Juliana Byers. And next time on The Skeptical Historian, we're jumping more than 100 years into the future to a secluded Victorian beach where a prime minister took his mistress for a romantic swim and just disappeared. So what happened to Harold Holt? And did we really name a swimming pool after a guy who drowned? Find out next time and stay skeptical. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced, and hosted by me, Juliana Bias. You can find a full list of resources used in researching this episode by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Epidemic Sound, and the music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic were used under an Epidemic Sound individual license. Podcast hosting is by Fusebox. See you next time, skeptics.